Well, good morning again, and Happy New Year. It's really good to be here this morning, spend a little time together studying God's Word, uh, especially on this first Sunday in, in 2018. Uh, has it been a happy new year thus far? We made it seven days, so I think that's something to be happy about. Uh, now that phrase, happy new year, is something that I've, I've heard a lot these last few weeks. I've said myself, I saw it on a billboard on the drive-in this morning, uh, and it's something that just kind of rolls off the tongue. And I maybe overanalyzed it a little bit as I've been thinking about it, but I, I even Googled it. We don't really know where that came from. Um, but as you think about it, and analyze it a little bit, it seems like there's somewhat of a double meaning to that, to that greeting. There's, of course, the, the initial celebration that this is a holiday and, and the turning into a new year. Uh, but I think it also has the idea of a, of a wish or, or a hope that our next year would be just that. It would be happy. Now, there's nothing wrong at all with happiness. In fact, translators use that word, happy, happiness, a lot of times in our scriptures. Um, but I think we all know it can be a confusing word in our culture. Uh, that sometimes when people talk about being happy, uh, they mean something a little more different than maybe what we're talking about. Uh, sometimes it can be tied to circumstance, maybe a little surface level. Uh, so this morning, I do want to talk about having a happy new year, uh, but do so with a word that is a very similar concept, but a word that I think is a little more universally understood to be uh, robust, has a little more depth, and that would be joy. Joy. Uh, having a joyful new year. I think everyone understands that, that joy is not inherently tied to our circumstance, that there's, there's some depth there. Now, I'm pretty sure that all of us have specific goals, resolutions, plans for this next year, and I think that is great, and I, I think it's awesome to think through uh, the coming year in that lens. But whatever the details of that is, whatever the details of those plans are, uh, I think joy would apply. No matter what we're hoping to do or accomplish this year, I think we would all agree that we would happily have 2018 be a year of deep, profound, unwavering joy. So this morning, we're going to talk about a joyful new year. And as we talk about that and think through that, I want to start us off with a question. Who will 2018 be about? Not what will it be about. All kinds of details can change as we live life and, and circumstance happens and, and God moves. But who will 2018 be about? You see, if this year is about me and, and, and what I want, then it might be happy, at least for a little while. But if we want this year to have something deeper, something deep enough, profound enough that we might call it joy, then this year has to be about someone much more important than myself. And that's our point for this morning. You can find it in, in your handout. But this morning we're going to see that true joy can only be found in recognizing our role of making much of Jesus. A true joy can only be found in recognizing our role in making much 
of Jesus. So this morning we're going to look at a very famous figure from Scripture. We've already mentioned him this morning, who, who has really models this joy thing for us. He's, he's got it pretty well figured out. And that's John the Baptist. So you can go ahead and turn to John chapter 3. That's where we're going to be. And as you do, remember the significant role that John played in the unfolding of God's plan. Okay, John the Baptist was the voice from Isaiah 40 that cried out in the wilderness, clear away for the Lord. You see, his job in a very formal way was to set the stage and to get out of the way. Now, I grew up in church and going to Sunday school, and at least the Sunday schools I went to, honestly, they always portrayed John as as kind of an oddball, just kind of a a weird guy. I don't know if it was his diet of locusts and honey or that he wore that camel skin coat or maybe that he lived out in the woods by himself, but he always seemed kind of strange to me as a kid. And and more than that, uh, he seemed pretty intense, Okay, that he was... He was a pretty intense guy. I don't know if it was the diet or where he lived or the the harsh words that he sometimes spoke with boldness. But I always viewed him as somewhat of a a Christian pit bull kind of guy. Now, I'm still not sure if uh, John the Baptist was a jokester. But we're going to see today that he was no grump. Our text is going to show us today that John the Baptist had a deep, unwavering, profound Joy, So unshakable, so complete and satisfying that that is where he found total security. So like I said, we're going to pick up the story in John chapter 3. It it comes right on the, the tale of one of the more famous stories in scripture where Jesus and Nicodemus had this famous midnight Q&A session. And you'll remember from that story... That Jesus emphasized to Nicodemus about the need to be born again, to be born from above. A concept that Nick, he really had a hard time with and was flabbergasted by. And more than that, didn't seem to receive very well. In fact, as the text ends that story, it seems like the conversation uh, it didn't end on a positive note. And so in a broad sense, what we see here in the story of Nicodemus is a negative reaction to Christ. A negative reaction to who he is. The supremacy of Jesus. And so as you're reading through it, it begs the question, well, what does a positive reaction to Jesus look like? What does it look like to to rightly respond to who Jesus is? And that's where we pick up the story with John the Baptist. So look with me as I read verses 22 through 26 of John chapter 3. After these things, Jesus and his disciples came into the land of Judea, and there he was spending time with them and baptizing. John was also baptizing in Anon near Salim, because there was much water there. And people were coming and being baptized, for John had not yet been thrown into prison. Therefore there arose a discussion on the part of John's disciples with the Jew about purification. And they came to John and they said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you beyond the Jordan, to whom you have testified, behold, he is baptizing and all are coming to him. So as we read John chapter 3, we find ourselves in this small window where the ministries of Jesus and John, they, they overlap. The text itself tells us in verse 24 that John had not yet been put in prison, uh, a move that would ultimately end his life. You remember the story. He calls out Herod for an immoral relationship. Didn't go over very well. Finds himself in jail. And and that stand ultimately would literally cost him his head. 
And it's this amazing story of courage, and you can read about it in, in Matthew 14, a few other places in the gospel. But the text tells us this simply as a time marker to say that hasn't yet happened. Right now, John is out there ministering. Jesus, too. And they both had followings. Not necessarily bad. These guys are just making disciples. And specifically, the verses tell us that they're baptizing. Uh, now, this the baptism at this time is what the Bible calls a baptism of repentance. It's still a symbolic act, but it's specifically tied uh, to r- repentance. Um, probably in anticipation of Messiah's coming, the coming of the kingdom. Uh, but it would be slightly distinct from what we practice now in Christian baptism. Uh, it's specifically tied to this idea of repentance. But in verse 25, we see that John's disciples, they're out doing their ministry, and they end up getting into a debate uh, with this unknown Jewish man. And they debate over purification or, or ceremonial washing. Now, we don't know exactly what was going on here. Um, some of what this is is just Jewish tradition, some of which centered on Old Testament promises that had the language of washing and purification. You can find some of them in Ezekiel 36. Uh, but there was a lot of debate and a lot of details. And clearly, what this Jewish man was talking about is different than what John and Jesus were doing. And again, we don't know the details, but there was obviously a conflict A debate. And something very interesting happens in this conversation that we aren't privy to. It shifts. We start with a debate over purification, almost a theological issue, and it morphs into one of comparison, of following. And the the way that that conversation changes, again, we don't know the details. I think it probably went something like this. John's disciples approach this Jewish man uh, about getting baptized. And he responds, oh, no, I'm Jewish. Uh, I actually do the ceremonial washing, so I got my own thing I'm doing. I'm good. No thanks. Well, the disciples push back maybe a little bit and say, well, you know, all we're really talking about here is repentance. That's what John is calling us to do. So how about that? What do you think about repentance? Well, if you've ever talked to anyone about sin or repentance, you know, that's kind of where conversations can go all over the place. So in my mind, I see this Jewish man responding back again. Listen, I'm not interested in John the Baptist or repentance or your baptism. And even if I was, you know what? I'd probably go down to the that guy down the road. Jesus, I hear he's got more people than you anyway. Kind of with a little bit of a, of a dig. Because you see here, we have this shift. We don't know exactly what was said, but it goes from this debate into a comparison, a following of even authority. And Jesus is is primary here. And now that might sound like a good thing. Oh, Jesus has a ton of followers. That's positive. But that's not how John's disciples react. In fact, they feel like there's some kind of uh, urgent situation here, and they bring this to John. They confront him, and I think their words give them away, their perspective. If you look closely at verse 26, they don't say Jesus is baptizing. They say that guy, you know, the one that you were always talking about, he's baptizing. Almost as if there's a level of of disdain here. And bringing this to John, they act almost overdramatic in verse 26, saying, John, everyone is going to Jesus. As if this is a crisis. 
What are we going to do about this? Well, before we even read John's response, I'm, I'm guessing that you can see that the text is hinting this is not the right way to look at this. That these guys do not have the proper perspective. Because the Christian life, it's not about following or status or reputation or really about us at all. It's about Jesus. And John's disciples' first reaction was to be upset that Jesus was in the spotlight, that everyone was going to him. All worked up as if they're bringing a crisis to John. And this text, I think, is begging the question of who is this all about? We can apply it to our our attitude in our Christian lives, our family, our workplace, even our ministries. Who is this all about? And how do we feel about that? We're going to hold on to that question for a little longer and jump back in the story. As you might have guessed, John does not share these guys' concern. Look Look with me at verse 27 through 30. John answered and said, A man can receive nothing unless it has been given to him from heaven. You yourselves are my witnesses that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent ahead of him. He who has the bride is the bridegroom. But the friend of the bridegroom, who stands and hears him, rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. So this joy of mine has been made full. He must increase, but I must decrease. What's John's response? Well, very simply put, he tells these guys, listen, it's, <laughs> it's not about me. And more than that, I'm glad it's not about me. I find my joy in the fact That it's not about me. Well, how can he say that? Uh, Check out his perspective in verse 27. Reminding us that anything that we do have, even notoriety or success, even those things are not because of us. Because even those are gifts from God. Did you see what the text says? A man can receive nothing unless what? Not because he's skilled or hardworking or charming. No, it... Is all given to him from above. He's saying that this is the role that I've been given. And that is the role that Jesus has been given. And you'll notice in verse 28. Those roles, even for a famous guy like John the Baptist. Are absolutely distinct. Even from his perspective. Jesus is totally set apart. And he reminds them of the very words he'd already told them. If you go back and read John chapter 1. You'll see that he said... I'm not the Christ. I'm not the prophet. I'm not Elijah. But I'll tell you what, I have been sent before him. I am supposed to point people to him, but I'm, I'm not him. In fact, John's whole mission in life was to point people to Christ in a very formal and special way in God's plan. Even from birth, this defined him. His whole purpose was to point to another. Well, this this kind of thing, it just doesn't come naturally for us. Uh, We as humans, we tend to be pretty self-focused. And his disciples were the same way. So in verse 29, John is going to give them a pretty cool illustration of how this plays out. What this looks like in a wedding. Now, how many of us here have been to a wedding? I'm guessing basically everyone's been to a wedding. Uh, I've, I've been to a wedding, uh, including my own. And 
John disciple, John's disciples, they would have been too. And so they understood how weddings work. And we all understand how a wedding works. You go to a wedding and there's, it's pretty standard to have a few key players. You have the bride, you have the groom, and then you have basically everybody else, right? They're the whole point of the wedding. They're the focus. I mean, even the way that we set these things up on this very stage, a wedding is the happy couple right here in the center. And everyone else, even important people like the best man, they still stand off to the side. Because it's the bride and groom who are the focus. It's about them. And so in this illustration, he's saying, Jesus is the focus. Now think about this. I've never been to a wedding and seen this or even heard of a groomsman standing in their place off to the side, out of the spotlight, make it partway through the ceremony and say, excuse me, minister, but... I gotta be honest. I've been standing here the whole time and I got all dressed up too and you've never even mentioned my name one time. In fact, I think I should get to stand a little more, excuse me, bride, right here in the center. I've, I've never heard or seen that happen. And if you have, send me the video. I wanna see it. But I don't think it exists because that would be absurd. The groomsmen, they, they stand off to the side. And they're not sad about it. They're smiling. They're happy to be there, to celebrate their friend. And in the same way the illustration is absurd, it's absurd for me to seek glory that belongs to Jesus. Focus that belongs to him. Listen again to what John says here. He says, he who has the bride is the bridegroom. That would be Jesus in the illustration. But the friend of the bridegroom, that would be John, who stands and hears him, rejoices greatly. Why does this friend rejoice? The text says it's because of the bridegroom's voice. John isn't upset that he's not in the spotlight. In fact, he's just happy to be involved, celebrating the groom. Because the best man, or, or really anyone else for that matter... Finds great joy just being there. Again, this is a powerful thing for John to say. And the absurdity of the illustration, I think, brings the point home. That because human nature is to grab at glory. To make it about me as if that would make me happy. If that would bring me fulfillment. But do you know what actually brings the total security and fulfillment of God-given joy? Making much of Jesus. Pointing people to Him. And we as believers are called to live a life where we divert all glory, all honor, all praise to the groom. To the one who deserves it. Jesus Christ. And in doing so, as counterintuitive as it might seem, we find the deepest joy imaginable. John says that he's simply assuming the role that God has given him. One where Jesus increases while he decreases. And he says, you know what? That totally fulfills me. Do you notice what he actually says in verse verse 29? That this joy of mine is complete. That it's absolutely enough for him. Totally fulfilling. Because there is real joy just to be at the party. Because it's his party. And it is his name 
that we're making great. Now, as we do this, the truth is, Jesus' name is, in fact, great. So as we live this out, we are just recognizing reality. And that's the direction that the rest of these verses go. But it's important to pause here for a moment to make a note on who's actually speaking in the text. Uh, The original Greek, uh, you'll remember, it didn't have quotation marks. So that's something translators have added in. Uh, And so there's a little bit of a debate about where the quotation marks end in this passage. But a lot of people think that John the Baptist stops talking at the end of what we just read, the end of verse 30. And John the Apostle, we're dealing with two Johns here, but the author of the book, John the Apostle, picks it up in verse 31. And I personally think that makes a lot of sense, even though some translations will extend it all the way through. I think it makes sense because these next verses we're going to look at, verses 31 through 36, they're going to bring the whole chapter together. And I think that it's the author, John the Apostle, who in verse 31 is going to once again highlight the supremacy of Jesus, the greatness of his name. So look with me at verses 31 through 36. He says, He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth is from earth and speaks of the earth. He who comes from heaven is above all. He who has seen and heard of that he testifies, and no one receives his testimony. He who has received his testimony has set this seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent speaks the words of God. For he, who, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into His hands. He who believes in the Son has eternal life. But he who does not obey the Son will not see life. But the wrath of God abides on him. So to drive this point home, John, that is the apostle, the author of the book, he does a quick little comparison here, showing that there's really not a whole lot of debate as to who should be exalted. Uh, who should be focused on. So as you read through the text, you see that it's asking, okay, well, where is Jesus from? Well, he's from above. He's from heaven. Well, where is John or Nicodemus or even us? Where are we from? Well, we're from earth. And so even a, a, an awesome guy like John the Baptist is still just a normal guy. He's from, he's from earth. But you see, because Jesus is from heaven... His words are from heaven. His words are from God. So don't look to anyone else. You look to Him. Yet we see in verse 32 that many still reject this reality. A choice that has serious consequences. uh, That we'll detail here in just a minute. But the passage is saying, you know what? Jesus is from heaven. We aren't. His words are God's words. We don't speak as God. In verse 34 and 35, his ministry and experience with the Father is so much greater than anything that we could ever imagine. Jesus is the one with all authority. He's the one who's been given the Spirit without measure, without any limits, in contrast to how the Spirit came and went to the prophets before this. And so we see in a few verse comparison that there really is no comparison. That Jesus is the only one who deserves any glory or honor, or praise. And I think that final conclusion there in verse 36, this challenge for those original readers, but also for us as well, uh, brings the whole thing together. Nicodemus, John the Baptist, the whole chapter. It's his final reminder that it is truly all about 
Jesus. And what you do with Jesus, how you respond to him, boy, that determines everything. Look in verse 36 again. He who believes in the Son has eternal life. But he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Friends, this is, this is the gospel right here. It's, it's the same gospel that you will find throughout this whole book of John. The reality of who Jesus is. And as you keep reading, of what he did for us. And that's a truth that can either be accepted or rejected. And our response to Jesus, it will affect our life right now. The very grammar of verse 36 there brings this into our life today, into 2018. See, both the experiences listed there in verse 36, eternal life and the wrath of God, they're listed in the present tense. And that's an amazing thing because that means that the joy of eternal life, a life making much of Jesus, it'll last for eternity, but it's also available right now. That we can live that life today. Uh, The inverse of that is true as well. That those who choose to reject Jesus, they even now are getting a foretaste of what's to come. The experience of, of God's wrath in their life. And what do I mean that by that? Well, they live a life without him, without this joy that's available. And it's all true even right now. So when we really understand who Jesus is as the sovereign Lord of the universe, who allows us to be at his party, our selfish ambitions and and self-promotion, it just, it melts away. Like John, we are just happy that we find our joy in in being part of what he is doing. So as we think of John the Baptist in his life, there's tons of lessons to learn from him. Uh, Courage, friendship, persecution. Uh, But I love this one on this Sunday as as I think it's totally relevant for all of us as we assess a new year. Where we've been and where we're going. Because the world that we find ourselves in is totally obsessed with self. The thinking that there's happiness to be found in that perspective, that outlook on life. But it's not just out there. It's also a temptation for us here in in the church, too. You see, we're tempted to make these amazing things like sharing Christ, discipling others, serving in the church, and make it about me. And that's where John's disciples found themselves too. John, though, he shows us a new path. He calls us to a life of believing in Jesus where we reject self-promotion for something greater. For the joy of making much of the Lord Jesus Christ. Pointing people to him. So what does that actually look like for Levi to decrease that Jesus might increase? Well, if you're anything like me, your your first strategy for decrease uh, might be something along the lines of thinking less of yourself, like self-deprecation. When things go good, you kind of deny it. And when things go bad, you kind of wallow it. And that's what you present out to the world. But you see, that's not what John is calling us to either. Because in a weird way, that too misses the point and again makes it about me. 
No, instead, John is saying, as he says in verse 30, that our first step to living this out is simply to shift our focus to Jesus. We start by making much of him. And the more we think about Jesus and talk about Jesus and find our joy in Jesus, the less that our focus shifts to anything or anyone else. But okay, I always want to know what do I actually do? (laughs) What are we supposed to actually do here? Well, let me illustrate with Facebook. Now, for those of you who don't have Facebook or social media, there's this thing called sharing on Facebook. It's actually pretty self-explanatory, but... When you find something you like or you want everyone else to see, you share it. You, you post it out there for everyone else uh, to see or read or, or whatever. Um, you share it. Well, a while back, they actually did a study uh, trying to figure out what compelled people to share what they did. How did people choose what they put out there for everyone to see? And it was pretty fascinating. This study found that people are 30 times more likely to share something if they have a personal sense of awe connected to it. And I think this rings true in my life. I don't post things, share things that I think are kind of dumb or boring. <laughs> I post things that I think are cool, that I like. Maybe it's an amazing picture or, or an awesome article or an awe-inspiring video. Something that has a sense of awe. They found that was the common denominator in what people put out there for people to see. So if you think about that for a second, according to this research, if I'm not sharing something, if I'm not pointing people to something, then it's because I have lost a sense of awe for it. Or maybe I never had a sense of awe to begin with. And I find that absolutely fascinating. Because over and over in this passage, the superiority, the greatness, the awe of Jesus is emphasized. He's the Messiah. He's the focus of the wedding. It's his voice we listen to. He is from above. He is the authority. And more than all of that, he is God. And it was this truth that John joyfully lived a life of belief in Jesus. You see, when we're in awe of Jesus, recognizing how great he truly is, we cannot help But share him. Appoint people to him. And it goes far beyond Facebook. So what are we supposed to do? Well, I think our first step is to pursue a fresh glimpse of the supremacy of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it is then that you can't help but be overjoyed to tell your neighbors, your friends, your family, anyone who will listen, that your life is about him. And not just your life, really everything is about him. And this is where John the Baptist found himself. In awe, deflecting to Christ. And I gotta tell you, he didn't, he didn't feel like he had to settle for this and this was just the life he had to live. He absolutely loved doing it. Because as we've been saying, true joy can only be found in recognizing our role of making much of Jesus. So whatever your resolutions or goals or plans are for this year, and however they've start in this last, started in this last seven days, and really whatever life throws at us 
in these coming months. Let's resolve to have a, a, a joyful new year. The kind of joy only found in exalting Christ. Now, if you're here this morning and you're not yet a believer in Jesus, let me finish with one very specific final challenge for you. You know, one of the amazing things about verse 36 that we read today and spent a lot of time on is that we see pretty clear that there is no neutral ground when it comes to Jesus. There's really just two options, belief and unbelief. And really, the text itself doesn't even use the word unbelief. It says disobeying Jesus. So this text, a huge part of it is that it's compelling us to make a choice. Belief or disobedience to to the Lord Jesus. But it's a choice that is absolutely possible because he has provided a way for you to be free from the wrath that we even now experience and deserve apart from Christ. And giving us this option for an eternal life of joy in Jesus. So if you'd like to know for yourself about re- receiving that joy, what that means, grab one of us pastors or leaders. We'd love to talk to you. You can stop in our prayer room in the back. We'll have a leader back there who would love to share this joy with you. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for the life of John the Baptist, a life of joy in you. Uh, we pray as we step into this new year that you would help us to experience that as well. And we just... Again, recognize how great you are. In Jesus' name, amen.